Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome back to the Heredity Podcast. This month, we're searching for signatures of selection in the hardy goats and sheep of Egypt's western desert and trying to monitor the dynamics of a man-made Wolbachia invasion in mosquitoes. Some of the most adaptable domesticated animals known to man are the goats and sheep. They seem to manage to scrape a living from almost any environment we put them in, and millions of people around the world rely on them for nourishment. Unlike the uniform breeds you may know from the temperate regions of the world, the indigenous breeds of goats and sheep from Egypt's coastal zone of the western desert have undergone much less artificial selection and have survived for at least 5,000 years in these hot and arid environments. Joram Macharo from the International Centre for Agricultural Research in the Dry Areas wanted to do a genome-wide search of these hardy ruminants' genomes to uncover the genetic basis for this adaptation. In the long run, this information may help breeding programmes for animals better suited to such conditions, as many areas will become hotter and drier under climate change. To start off, here's Joram on why he's so interested in goats. Actually, goats and sheep interest me because of the fact that in most of the low agricultural production systems, they are normally regarded as the poor man's cow. Indirectly also, it has been referred to as the current account for the farmers. They can easily sell off a goat as compared to selling off a cow. The other thing I'm interested in is that uh, this species has integrated itself in almost any agroecological system. If you go to the highlands, very cold areas, you'll always find a goat. If you go to most to the lowlands and the driest areas anywhere, you'll always find sheep and goats. They have the genetic potential to adapt themselves in any kind of situation they find themselves in. And it's and it's true, isn't it, that we we, we think they were domesticated around eleven thousand years ago, but the different populations in the different systems have undergone different relative amounts of artificial versus natural selection. That's correct. They were domesticated somewhere in the Fertile Crescent, and then from there you find some gene pools having moved into different ecological locations to different production systems, and from that movement out of the center of domestication, we tend to find a lot of diversity having developed within the same species, but in different geographic regions. And this could be as a result of natural selection or even reproductive isolation and genetic drift, which has taken place in these small isolated populations. And you were particularly looking for signals of uh, natural selection in indigenous populations uh, around in uh, the part of the world that you work in, in the Western Desert. Yes, the coastal zone of the western desert in Egypt, which is quite a hot area and it's very dry. And when you look at what they are grazing, it's almost stubble, very low in nutritive value compared to the highland areas 
Is it fair to say then that the breeds of sheep and goats in more temperate regions are a more sort of uniform and artificially selected, whereas in these indigenous populations there's a lot more sort of variety? Indeed, yes. In fact, if you look at the breeds of sheep and goats, which are found in the temperate regions, we see very uniform breeds in terms of coat color or even in terms of production. And this is because they have been standardized over time through artificial selection, which is targeting specific production parameters. But when you look at breeds in most of the tropical environments, because of the lack of stringent artificial selection for either coat color or production parameters, you find that you have a lot of diversity across the different breeds and populations which are found there. And this is the reason even why the term breed as it is sometimes doesn't very much apply to most of the populations you find in the tropics simply because they have not been standardized. So there hasn't been a, a full genome sequencing of these particular populations of goats. Um, how did you go about then doing your genome-wide scans? Yeah, we don't, we don't have a full genome of these populations, but uh, there has been the development of what we call the SNP chips, which is the collection of polymorphisms all across the genome which has been put together, and this can be used to do a full genome-wide assessment of the single nucleotide polymorphisms across the genome for you to be able to understand the level of diversity across populations or within a population, and that's how we went about it. We used the SNP chip, which has been developed for goats and sheep as well, and this has about 50,000 markers and these markers are what we are calling the SNPs, or the single nucleotide polymorphisms. And you did that, and what you were looking for were areas of the genome that have these strong, these strong signals of selection. You did a sort of selection sweep approach, you call it, in the paper. Exactly. And that's where we use the FST approach and the integrated haplotype score. And the integrated haplotype score only looks at regions within the genome which are highly conserved. So you find a very large region which is almost conserved in these populations, and that conservation is most likely as a result of selection. Well, when you look at the FST, we look at allelic frequency differences between the naturally selected and the artificially selected. And these differences in the allele frequencies, if you have a very high level of divergence, between the populations, then it gives you a signal of selection which indicates that at that particular region, these two populations or these two breeds are quite different in the allele frequencies of the different markers which we observe or which we, 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 we scan across the genome. Tell me about some of those candidate regions in, in, that you found in the genome that appeared to be under selection. We found across the genome about seven regions uh, under selection. We find regions which are related to immune, adaptive immune response. And most of these natural populations in the coastal zone of the Western Desert, they do not undergo a lot of veterinary intervention in terms of treatment. So intuitively, because of that, the animals tend to develop immunity against particular diseases or particular pathogens which are found in these regions. The same also we find in, like, sheep. We find a very interesting region there, which has a lot of the myosin 
heavy chain family of genes. These are genes which are responsible for muscle energy metabolism, which is necessary to facilitate movement. Because of the dryness of the region, you find that the animals have to walk very long distances in search of pastures and water, and therefore they have to develop this resilience. We also found an, another very interesting region which had a gene which, which is responsible for digestive metabolism because most of the feeds found in the coastal zone of the western desert are very poor in terms of nutritive value. So it's important that these animals be able to extract the maximum they can be able to get. Then another interesting thing which we found in these two species, we found some common genes, eight genes in selective regions within the two species. And this is important because it shows us that within the environment where they are found, they are undergoing selection in common candidate regions in a common environment. And that is quite interesting to us because we can be able to understand the adaptive evolutionary mechanisms in different species by just doing a genome-wide assessment or a genome-wide scan. And also important to our farmers who depend on these livestock for their livelihood. Do you think that we'll one day create uh, a drought-resistant goat? <laughs> quite an interesting question. Uh, I think... Uh, we might be able to breed a goat breed or a, a, a specific goat which is better adapted to the hot, arid environments. I'm very optimistic about that, given that we already have the genetic material or the genetic resource which we can start, we can, we can start from, which forms the foundation for such a breeding program. That was Joram Macharo. Aedes aegypti is an urban-adapted mosquito, the primary vector for dengue virus. One novel approach scientists are using to stem the transmission of dengue virus to humans is by artificially infecting these mosquitoes with a strain of Wolbachia. Wolbachia is a maternally inherited endosymbiotic bacteria found in 20-80% to 80% of insect species, and part of its allure to scientists is that it can manipulate its host's reproduction. One such manipulation is called cytoplasmic incompatibility, whereby the fusion of Wolbachia-infected sperm with uninfected eggs does not lead to viable offspring. And so this gives an advantage to Wolbachia-infected females, and as such, Wolbachia can invade very quickly through a host population. And since certain Wolbachia strains can also mess with the dengue virus, a successful Wolbachia invasion through these mosquito populations is a good thing. The ultimate goal is obviously to eradicate dengue transmission to humans, but this paper, authored by Heng Lin Yep from the University of Melbourne and his team, was aimed at designing a quality control assay for the released Wolbachia-infected mosquitoes. Traditionally, studying the transmission dynamics in the field has been a laborious logistical nightmare, so Heng Lin Yep and his team designed a way to look at the transmission dynamics using the mosquito's mitochondrial variation alongside the Wolbachia, hopefully aiding the future use of the exciting biocontrol. To start off, here's Heng Lin on how it is that Wolbachia messes with the mosquito's reproduction. I guess one of the effects that it causes is uh, called cytoplasmic incompatibility, which is when the uninfected female mates with the infected male, then they produce no offspring, uh, no viable offspring, 
Whereas um, when an infected female mates with an infected male, they produce infected offspring. And when you have an uninfected male mating with an infected female, you get infected offspring. And so this creates a bit of a bias towards producing more infected uh, offspring. Aedes aegypti doesn't normally um, host wolbachia in natural populations. What's the theory then behind, um, you know, trying to drive wolbachia through the population? How would that protect humans against dengue? They have this life-shortening strain of wolbachia from Drosophila menelogaster, and they wanted to use this uh, life-shortening phenotype to shorten the lifespan of uh, Aedes aegypti mosquitoes such that they don't live long enough to be able to transmit dengue. When they did that, they also found that the Wolbachia itself was, was somehow also blocking dengue proliferation in the mosquito itself. And so it turns out that uh, they could just use a a normal Wolbachia strain that doesn't shorten life of a mosquito to block dengue. And that's what they released in 2011 in Cairns in Australia. How do you judge the, the quality of the mosquitoes that are released as biocontrols? What makes a good Wolbachia-infected host? Uh, I guess there's two aspects that you look at. So one is the fidelity of the Wolbachia transmission. Having a, a high transmission rate is a good quality to help the transmission spread faster. And another one is the cytoplasmic incompatibility rate. That's whether what's the hatch rate of uh, uninfected female crosses with uh, infected male. You would want that to be zero. That's right. Yes. The lower that is, that means. That's reducing the uh, effective fertility of uninfected females. There are also other qualities such as um, body size of the mosquitoes, fecundity, also whether there's the effect of the wobake on assortative mating, so whether the uninfected mosquitoes prefer assortively mate with uninfected, which can affect the fitness of the mosquitoes. So there have been all of these field releases and your purpose in this paper was to try and assess the population dynamics of Wolbachia in these populations. So how has that been done in the past? So previously we would uh, have to sample a very large population of uh, um, wild mosquitoes, both infected and infected, and then you would have to screen for infection and, and then look at hatch rate. And this actually is quite labour-intensive. And basically, you and your team have come up with a much neater way of doing this using mitochondria. That's right, yeah. From from the modelling perspective, we, we showed that uh, in, in some cases, uh, you can reduce the amount of workload by just screening a sample of the population uh, over time. And you don't need to have, like, live individuals uh, you can have catch mosquitoes and don't need to keep them alive to screen them for this mitochondrial variation that are co-inherited with Wolbachia. So the theory is that because mitochondria and Wolbachia are both passed down maternally from mother to offspring, that they should exhibit linkage disequilibrium. Yes, that's right. 
And so what you're saying is that you want to find some mitochondrial variant that distinguishes between the infected mosquitoes and the uninfected mosquitoes. That's right. Yeah, And we found differentiation between the Wolbachia-infected mosquitoes and the three overseas sites, so, uh, Indonesia, Vietnam, and Brazil. Whereas the ones in Australia, uh, is, uh, there's still some shared uh, common haplotypes. And this paper then was part modelling and, and part case study. So a few scenarios that we considered here, three main scenarios. So the first is when you have a persisting infection, so when the Wolbachia infection uh, successfully invade and persist. The second is when you don't get infection at 100%. And then the last case is when uh, the infection actually fails to to establish and actually goes extinct. But even even with these models, you can't really be certain, can you, why you've sampled an uninfected individual? Ah, uh, yes, that's right, yes. So one thing you can be really certain is when you have an uninfected individual which shared the uh, haplotype that um, was initially found in infected individuals. And that's a, a clear evidence of a trans, transmission leakage of the infected female. But when you get something like, um, let's say, uh, an, an uninfected individual with uh, the haplotype that's just common to the uh, field population, then that's where we uh, we need to assess whether that could be due to uh, immigration uh, from external population or whether that's just a, a result of um, cytoplasmic incompatibility where when an infected female could still produce some offspring with an infected male. Do you think that Wolbachia-infected vectors are going to be a useful biocontrol in the future? I would definitely give it some credit, yes. And I would say that uh, it still has a long way to go in terms of assessment of how successful it would be in the field. Probably one of the main concerns is whether um, Wolbachia can become less effective to the host like in terms of because usually they, they, over time you tend to get evolution towards more symbiotic relationship. But one of the other possibilities was to introduce new strains that blocks the uh, infection transmission. So that's how to sort of keep the biocontrol method going long term. But I would still emphasize that there also need to be all other aspects of biocontrol to be done in an integrated fashion. So rather than just, just Wolbachia only, there's always room for an integrated method. That was Heng Lin Yep from the University of Melbourne. And that's it for this episode of the Heredity Podcast. We're taking a break for the holidays, so we'll see you in 2016 for the January edition. Thanks for listening.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 